Okay, we don't have time for that. So it's uh, welcome back to the Cold War Show, episode 99, Ho Chi Minh, part three. Now, Ray, when we finished Ho Chi Minh, part two, we turned off the recording. You asked me a question, Let's yeah. and we did it off air. Let's do it on air, yeah. because if you're wondering, other people are wondering, and let's clear it yeah. up. No, just the very last sentence you said that the Americans were gathering their naval forces at Pearl Harbor to go attack the Japanese, and I thought you meant to attack them before they attacked us, like in a, in a preventative move. Right, and and uh, that's I didn't suggest that no, you did necessarily, not. You did not. although although that was definitely would have been part of the military planning. So we know that the Americans moved their Pacific fleet to Hawaii to intimidate the Japanese during this period. Right. No, well, okay, maybe. Okay, so when you when you're a military strategist, right, and you move your forces to a place like that, mm-hmm. you're aware that there's a range of possible things that could happen. You, on one hand, you think, well, maybe just the presence of our forces there will intimidate them and they'll back down. Of course, anybody who knew anything about Shinto and uh, the Japanese mindset would know that they're not going to be intimidated. That's just wasn't in the Japanese Shinto mindset then. Right. I know Americans weren't exactly uh, that familiar with Japanese, but certainly the the military planners had some understanding of Shintoism. Well, and the and the militaristic culture of Japan at the time. So hold on, so one, there's a possibility that you'll scare them away. B, there's the thinking that okay, maybe we'll have to attack them. First, if they're not going to back down, we will attack them. We'll declare war and attack. Or C, maybe they will attack a, an area that we have an interest in first, in this case, the Philippines and Guam, and uh, we will have our fleet there to go and fight them and defend our territories. And D, there was the possibility, and at least some people were warning of the possibility, some Americans, that the that Hawaii, the Pearl Harbor, would get attacked by the Japanese, that it was too provocative to put the fleet there. Uh, it was quite obvious what America was doing, and, that the, and, and they'd already declared war on the Japanese through economic means, that the Japanese would attack first. And as I said to you um, off air, we, we've talked about this in a previous show, the Pacific Fleet Commander went to Washington to complain that they were going to be sitting ducks and he was basically removed from command and replaced with husband or one mm-hmm. of these guys. Husband, husband came. Yeah, no, because um, well, to to counter the Shinto, and you're absolutely right; these people would not uh, back down. It was beyond; it was unimaginable. But to uh, to counter that, you had the not only American arrogance, but you had American racism. I mean, there were stories um, uh, just going through some a lot of the different things that the Americans, mostly the military, thought about the Japanese, that they weren't very good pilots, that there, there was something wrong with their eyes so they couldn't see very well. Uh, their brains were smaller than average, and so they weren't as intelligent. So there's no way they could have a, an effective fighting force. So it was beyond the American imagination for, for most of the people, not all of them, uh, that they would actually attack us, that, that they would not back down, did not even enter the thinking for a lot of people. We put our forces in, we built up our forces in Pearl Harbor, 
we intimidate them, we use the economic sanctions, they're either going to have to back down or do something so monumentally stupid and attack us. And again, that's the American point of view. But because of their culture, attack us is exactly what they did because they had been pushed beyond a breaking point. To them, they had nothing to lose. And so they attacked. It just happened to work out you know, relatively well um, with the first attack, at least for the first six months. Mm. Um, so here's my notes from Cold War 13 <laughs> from uh, August 2016. Um, I said that uh, in May 1940, FDR had moved the entire U.S. Pacific fleet to Hawaii. Basing the fleet at Pearl Harbor was a huge risk and the Pacific Fleet Commander Admiral James O. Richardson mm. personally flew to Washington to complain that this is going to make them a target for attack and they weren't ready to defend themselves and he was fired and replaced. Right, because FDR was looking so the, for an excuse. Sorry, go ahead. So, so the idea that no Americans thought that the Japanese would attack them is not true. The fleet commander at Pearl, at Pearl Harbor got fired over complaining about it. They knew, at least he knew, right. that it was a very huge but, risk. Well, it's his idea to consider the risk and, and, and that his forces were being exposed by having them out there that far. But you're, I mean, you're right that he certainly thought about that. But FDR was looking for an excuse. He just didn't think it was going to be as bad as Pearl Harbor turned out to be. Or did he? We still don't know. Mm. But yeah. I mean, there is a theory that he kind of knew they were going to be attacked and he wanted it to happen. We've talked about that before. Yeah. But anyway, my point is just that when, when, when you move your uh, troops, when you move your fleet uh, close to a, a field of action, yeah. you know it's going to be used. That's the reason you put it there. And uh, the Japanese knew the Americans were going to use it, so they decided to strike first. Yeah. So they did. They did strike first, and the world celebrated. Um, De Gaulle, in particular, said, "Well, basically, that's it. The war's over." Um, he said, "Yeah, oh, there's going to be some battles, but pretty much the war's <laughs> over because the Americans are getting involved now." And the Americans are going to kick everyone's <laughs> ass because he he was totally confident in American superiority. Uh, he must have been part American. He was so convinced that Americans were just <laughs> Got inherently superior. Yeah. Well, I don't know. Unfortunately, yeah. FDR's confidence in De Gaulle was not quite as high as De Gaulle's confidence in FB, FDR. <laughs> um, as we've talked about before, FDR hated De Gaulle. Um, De Gaulle was one of those people that if you think you hated him before you met him, <laughs> you then met him and you were like, oh, I really hate him. Um, and the more powerful De Gaulle became, the less sure FDR was that the French should get their colonies back after the war. Mm. He was saying, look, I know I said that you would get your colonies back after the war. You but pissed me off. This De Gaulle, this De Gaulle guy, fuck him. I, <laughs> well, 
don't like him at all. Well, you make a good point because a minute ago we were talking about the differences and the misunderstandings between American culture and Japanese culture, and I did not appreciate the French the as the certain aspect of French culture, whereas you know the Americans are like, hey, if I'm a politician, I try to be your bud, and I try to come across as the common man, and I'm just one of the guys, and vote for me. I'm just like you people. Whereas the French, I I guess sense of leadership doesn't do that. Uh, that De Gaulle was very haughty, not because he was not just because of his personality, but because it's something the French do, and that just rubs the Americans the wrong way, which is okay, that's fine, everybody's different, but like you said a minute ago, America's the ones that's, they, we've got all the resources, we've got all the money, France is going to need us, but De Gaulle, I guess, was just who he was, and he was not going to change for anybody. I don't think it was just because he was French and all French people that way. I think it's just De Gaulle. De Gaulle was just an annoying motherfucker. Right. Everyone hated him. <laughs> Everyone who met him hated him. They didn't hate all the French leaders. Right. Like FDR, FDR chose to work with Girard. He he thought he was a good guy. He just turned out to be as effective as a piece of wet yeah. wet bread. Yeah. Um. Did, he didn't like De Gaulle because De Gaulle was French. He just didn't yeah. like him because he was De Gaulle. I, I, I do have to say that. In this episode, we will certainly see a, a less than noble side of FDR. But the, but but and this has to be said that FDR and a lot of other Americans were disappointed in the France's performance in World War II. I mean, they were knocked out in six weeks, and so why should we take them seriously? Why should we? be concerned about them? Why should we help them? Why should we spend any money on them building other military so they can just lose again in the future? So even though a part of it was de Gaulle was an asshole, I think the Americans just lost a lot of respect for the French for being taken out so quick, which may sound superficial, but this was a war and it would have been nice if France could have lasted about a year or two before getting their asses handed to them. But I just think it really... I think the Americans were just very disappointed in their but, performance. To be fair, that's not De Gaulle's no, no, fault. It's he not. wasn't the head of the military. No. And he was the guy that had been saying, we need to build tanks. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. And the, the rest of the French military were like, ah, tank schmanks. And uh, we are too busy uh, going to brothels where people piss on us. We do not have time to be building tanks. No, that's true. So it wasn't his yeah, fault. That's not as true, but, but he, anyway. he's the guy who's standing out the, and, the most for the French. And he's the guy that he's the guy that said, no, fuck it, we're going to fight on. Yeah. You would have thought the Americans would have loved that. He's the guy who didn't fold right. up like a wet blanket. He's the guy that went, no, we're going to keep fighting. For we will fight them. We will fight them on the beaches. <laughs> we will fight them in the streets. We will fight them. And the brothers. Churchill said, that's my fucking yeah. speech. Yes, but this sounds so much better when I do it because I am French and you are but, not. But for whatever reason, I think, I think FDR, and he's the one that really matters at this point, was just not. He, he thought France as a, as a power was a spent force. And de Gaulle is, you know, re representing France. Well, he was so. He was right. They were. Yeah. Anyway, I think he just didn't like De Gaulle. And so, anyway, the point is that FDR starts to change his mind about the French <laughs> colonies uh, as De Gaulle becomes the, 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 the sort of the main front runner for the leadership. But FDR's wondering if Indochina and, and the other French colonies are not going to be returned to France, what the fuck are we going to do with them? They're not white people, right. so they can't self-govern. No. Uh, what are we going to do? So he comes up with this idea of 
a trusteeship formula. Huh. Where the colonies would sort of be managed by the United Nations that Who? would have... <laughs> yeah, this thing that he's going to create. The United Nations, this international trusteeship, um, which, you know, they would kind of look after them in a non-exploitive way, so they're not going to be part of a colonial trading block. Right. Um, they're going to look after them. They're going to teach them how to be good little democracies and eventually get them on their feet. Okay. Now, not a, not a bad idea. Quite honestly, I think this is probably a good idea. Um, it's going to be – it's not – it's, it's it's not like the mandate system that they had after World War One, where they just divvied up the Middle East and said, "All right, France, you get this bit; Britain, you get this bit." It's no, it's going to be the United Nations that are going to manage and sort of take a benign uh, management of it and get them on their feet as quickly as possible. Now he starts laying out this plan to the British Foreign Secretary, old Anthony Eden in March of 1943, <laughs> and in particular, he singles out Indochina right. as an area that should be controlled by this. Oh. Now, as you can imagine, the British were like, oh, oh fucking what? <laughs> uh, are you insane? Now, um, Eden would end up actually playing a huge role in Britain's Indochina policy for the next dozen or so years, but he's like, oh, come on. I think you're being a little bit too hard on the French there, FDR. <laughs> FDR just ignored him right. and said, look, France should be prepared to place part or all of her overseas territories under the authority of the United Nations. Now, old black threesome, Sumner <laughs> Wells, um, said, so what about American pledges to restore to France her possessions? Ooh. Awkward. Roosevelt said, yeah, yeah, that, when I said that, I only meant North Africa, their possessions right. in North Africa. Because they're darker. And, and Sumner thought, hmm, bet you there's a lot of black men in North <laughs> Africa. Yeah. <laughs> but does, I, but I, I volunteer to go and uh, I, will, I will lead the help. way. Yeah. Yeah, North Africa. Now, Woodrow Wilson, of course, had set up this mandate system uh, in the Middle East, in particular after World War One. But this was going to be totally different because it has a different name. <laughs> they're not calling it a mandate; they're calling it a trusteeship. So you know, it's like Americans don't call it an empire; right? They call it just we've got the bomb. So it's a different. thing. Thing, if you call it a different thing. Oh, I like that. Okay, so so this is so basically he's focusing on France, and he's certainly focused on Indochina. But you've got to imagine Britain doesn't like this either. I mean, they they have an empire too. What's going to happen to them? But the British, and I'm not saying that they're wrong, but they're cynical, and you can't blame them for that. So when the British hear what FDR has got planned for Vietnam, he's like, no, 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 no. You're just trying to break up the empires so then you can make Vietnam one of your markets. So what does Britain do? Because they can't really overpower the United States. They go into stall mode. They just don't talk about it. They won't engage the Americans. They don't agree to anything. And they're just basically stalling for time. Because we are in the middle of a war. Maybe something will happen and it will switch gears. But 
Britain is just playing the long game at this point. So the way that FDR saw it, to be serious for a moment, is a completely different enforcement mechanism than the mandate system that would have a much higher degree of international accountability. Right. So the, 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 the territory, the previous colonial territory, was not going to be the exclusive preserve of a particular country that would control it, but it would be run by what he called a sacred trust oh. over which the international community would have certain responsibilities. A bit of a utopian uh, visionary, your FDR. Like, really did believe right. that this could work and that the United Nations would do the right thing. But Anthony Eden just saw it as old wine and new bottles and he didn't like the taste. <laughs> and he's right. The way that... He saw it. The Americans were just going to use this concept for their own economic advantage. So whereas previously these colonial powers had their colonies and they formed these colonies into a trading block where only they could trade or at least uh, they could trade with them with, with you know, special advantages, advantages right. uh, better prices, first right of refusal, all that kind of stuff. This international supervision of colonies would just be a smokescreen by which America could get access to the economic resources of these colonies. And he's probably right. Again, America's like, no, no, look, no, we're not saying shut up and give us access. We're saying it's a sacred trust where we will... You have unicorns and rainbows and blue milk and, you know, then we will all come together and we will just, you know, give us what we want because we got the bump. (laughs) We got the bump. Yeah, we got the bump. So the British were like, yeah. I don't like the sound of international supervision of colonies because we've got colonies. Right. And we, we, we're not big on the idea of international uh, Anything. supervision of them. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. he said, well, maybe, maybe these United Nations could have like an advisory capacity. Ah. FDR was like, no, no, no. <laughs> Sacred trust, international trusteeship, which means we all get to say. Right. Democracies. We love democracies here in America, uh, unless it's Hawaii or, you know, Batista in right. Cuba or, you know, Puerto Rico or the Philippines yeah. or... Uh, anyway, anyway, for, so just forget, <laughs> just, like, just, we got the, the exceptions. Bomb. Right. Yeah, we got the bomb. <laughs> what do I need to say? Well, not, not yet. They didn't have the bomb yet, but we will have the bomb. Soon. And then you I will do it. what we say. Right. Yeah, I'm paying for it. We better <laughs> fucking have a bomb. I got a receipt right here. Um, can, can we talk? Um, yeah. Well, yeah, I was just going to say, and then the Brits just kept changing the subject and they said, hey, you know, anyone ever had a black threesome? And Sumner Wells was like, oh, <laughs> let me tell you. And that's how they got out of that conversation. 
Now, for FDR, obviously the war is it's uh, halfway through the war, and he's getting older, and he's not quite the master of his domain that he's been in the past. And and like you said a minute ago, even Churchill gets pissed off uh, thinking about this. So FDR knows he can't bring it up to him. So FDR is going to try new a new tact with uh, Churchill. He's going to talk to Chiang Kai-shek, the nationalist leader in China. And he says, look, I'm going to use China to counterbalance Britain and France and Asia. At least I'll have somebody on my side who thinks this is a good idea. So he's talking to Chiang Kai-shek and Chiang Kai-shek says, no, no, I, I, I mean, I agree with you that the idea of colonies pretty much gave Japan the excuse to liberate them from the white people. But basically, they're a big pain in the ass. Uh, they they need to be free, too. So FDR, they need to be free right away. So FDR and Chang do not hit it off in November of 1943, where they're in Cairo. So the, so the fallback plan that FDR had after not getting a very good response from China, uh, from uh, France and Britain, he now goes to China, and that doesn't work out so very well. So his trusteeship idea is not going so well, and he's used to getting his way. Well, just to clarify that, he didn't go to China. He no, went to Cairo. to Cairo. I apologize, yeah. I know they both begin with C, That's close but enough they're for me. actually different words. Right, in Cairo. I've sorry. got a word to describe you that begins with a C. <laughs> no. That I'm thinking of right now. How many letters? Four. <laughs> Four. Do you want to okay. guess? Um, uh, cat with two T's. No, that doesn't sound right. <laughs> anyway. So, yeah, no, well, one of the other things that happened in his meeting with Chiang Kai-shek is Chiang said... Um, I tell you what, no, I really like I really like this idea of uh, trusteeship program. You go tell Churchill that we want Hong Kong back, oh, shit. and get him to see, agree to that. See how that works out, and then um, I'll talk to you about Indochina. Ah, and and FDR was actually fully supportive. He said he would go and have that conversation with Churchill, but then he chickened out because. Uh, <laughs> Churchill got naked and oiled himself up and he got distracted. Well, before this, they had actually talked about, um, oh, not Hong Kong. Was it Hong Kong? No, India. They talked about India. And Churchill freaked. And this was after Pearl Harbor when uh, Churchill and his staff comes over to the White House, uh, 42. Church, uh, Churchill freaked out so intensely and for so long just went on a diatribe. FDR was afra- afraid to bring up anything about the British Empire. So he certainly wasn't going to talk to him about Hong Kong because he'd already freaked out about the idea of losing India. Mm. And meanwhile, the Chinese communists under Mao Zedong are starting to increase their activity, ah. particularly in the north. So FDR's not even sure that uh, <laughs> right. China's going to be in a position to help much down the track. Are they one of the four so policemen? After that, They're supposed to be one of the four. They were one of the four policemen, yeah. Okay. So after, after of the apocalypse, so from Cairo, <laughs> FDR, that's when he went to Tehran for his meetings with Churchill, and that was the first time that he met Uncle Joe. Uh, during his initial catch-up with Uncle Joe, um, remember Churchill was like, don't meet with him without me. <laughs> it's not that I don't trust you. It's just that trust you might don't. send the wrong message. Right. And FDR was like, don't tell me what to do, bitch. I'm going to do what I want to do. So he has a... Private meeting with Stalin. 
he he ran the idea of the trusteeship of Indochina past Stalin. Stalin was like, yes, very good idea. I like it a lot. Um, uh, I, I support independence of all colonial subjects because if there's anything we know about Stalin is that he was a nice guy. and A people person. A people person. Um, now, a note taker at Tehran noted that the president, Roosevelt this is, remarked that after 100 years of French rule in Indochina, the inhabitants were worse off oh. than they had been before. Right. Um, Churchill brought up the trusteeship program uh, when he's with Stalin. He sort of implied, lied that Chiang Kai-shek agreed. Stalin <coughs> expressed support for it, but as the meeting drew to a close, they both agreed there was no point discussing India with Churchill. <laughs> yeah, let's not let's not bring it up. He's just it'll just yeah. fuck. We will not shut up. That'll be it for the night. You bring up India, and Churchill's just going to go off on a fucking yeah. rant. Go four no, hours. Just check you know, out. Crazy. Yeah, yeah. But but if you think about it, I mean, for for FDR, it's got to be frustrating. He, he he's pissed off the French. He's pissed off the British. China's letting him down. And as we're about to see, even though Stalin is like, I'm going to back you, but that's only because Stalin wants France to lose the colony so they'll be weaker and they'll be poorer. But when Stalin starts having his success and, and FDR is getting an idea of his ambition, FDR doesn't even know if he can use him to help him with his trusteeship. So all of the the various planks supporting this trusteeship idea are really starting to give in. And FDR has just got to be truly frustrated at this point that it's not working out the way he wants. Because let's face it, he's trying to take Vietnam and help everybody else. But he's trying to take Vietnam away from France, from De Gaulle, the cocksucker. From De Gaulle, he's trying to he's trying to stick it to De Gaulle, and no one's helping him stick it to him. Help he's me. like, Come I'm on. in a wheelchair. Help me get up and stick it to him. Come on, guys, I need a team. One of you to pick me up. Two of you to pick me up. One of you to pull my dick out, and one of you to stick it in. <laughs> now he's six um, seven. Now, so you're gonna have to throw me up in the air. Now, I, I think you. I think you actually um, accidentally got something right there. I think that um, <laughs> Chiang Kai-shek's support for it, uh, uh, initial support for it, is probably because he wants to control the whole region. Yeah, get rid of the yeah, French, then border. I can come in and take yeah. it. Yeah. Um, now, for the British, of course, though, this whole idea is a dangerous game of dominoes. If 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 they take away colonial control of Indochina, what's going to stop them from doing the same thing to Burma, Malaya, India, other parts of the British Empire? Although my understanding is that the Atlantic Charter, signing that was really Churchill's tacit approval that he would uh, uh, end the British Empire um, after World War II and would give all these people their freedoms. But, of course, as we know, like Stalin, Churchill just agreed to whatever he had to agree to right. at the time <laughs> to get what he wanted, which was American FDR support. Yeah. Yeah, and he's like, shit, I won't even be prime minister after the war, <laughs> motherfuckers. Like, uh, it's old. not my problem. Someone else's problem. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and here, here's one more thing to it. In between, you know, on, on, uh, on one side of Vietnam, you've got China. To the south of China, you've got... Uh, the Dutch East Indies, you've got British possessions. If the French aren't there in Vietnam, in force, acting, if you will, as a barrier between potentially communist China, or at the very least, even if it's um, <clears throat> Chiang Kai-shek, they, are, they uh, have ambitions, 
to to act as a buffer from British territory. So the British really need the French in Vietnam. They need them strong and they need to support them because it's going to help keep a buffer for their territory if they don't give it up. So Britain is obviously um, trying to serve themselves by helping the French or by supporting the French. Yeah. Uh, they've got lots of other reasons for wanting to support the French too. Um, but before we get into that, I wanted mm. to mention that Alexander Cadogan, the permanent undersecretary of the Foreign Office, British Foreign Office, he heard about one of Roosevelt's attacks on the hopeless French record in Indochina, and he wrote, we'd better look out. Were the French any more hopeless than we are in Malaya or the Dutch in the <laughs> East Indies? God. So, yeah, good point. Um, yeah, we treat them like shit, but that's what they want. That's how we make they, money. They, 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 and that's what they want. Honestly, yeah. that's uh, they thank me every time I that's all they roll know. into town. They're like, thank you for treating us like shit. <laughs> thank you for whipping me, master. Yeah. Now, uh, for the British, uh, thinking of Indochina, as you say, it was a barrier between China and uh, and a string of British possessions uh, across Asia and the South. Japan had obviously used it, as we said, as the forward base of her operations for Malaya and Burma, and that couldn't be allowed to happen again. So, as always, strategic consideration was protecting British colonies. It took precedence over morals or ethics (laughs) about freedom-seeking peoples of the world and self-government. It's like, yeah, 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 we believe in all that stuff, but... but... What we believe in more... Is cha-ching. Is cha-ching. That's right, yeah. (laughs) Now, uh, yeah, so Britain also knew that France... uh, They were going to need France to be both friendly and powerful after World War II to help them control Europe and maintain the balance Uh, of power in Europe. They knew the Soviets were going to have a powerful army... The U.S. were going to have military and economic superiority because they got the bomb. Germany was possibly going to be revived after the war. They still hadn't really decided what they were going to do there. But they needed to have a powerful, cooperative France after the war. And one way to achieve that for the British was to support de Gaulle's determination to retain the colonies. Ah, Churchill said to Eden in mid-1944, Roosevelt has been more outspoken to me on that subject than any other colonial matter. And I imagine it is one of his principal war aims to liberate Indochina from France. Do you really want to go and stir all this up at such a time as this? So quietly, London stonewalled FDR and his efforts to talk about the colonial issue. Yeah. Roosevelt continued to push it, but as the war dragged on, he sort of stopped pushing it as hard as he had. Obviously, as we've said, the whole four policemen plan that he'd had for how to run the world after the war was starting to fall Apart, right. China was getting deeper and deeper into its own all-out civil war. He knew he was going to need the cooperation of the British and the French, which they would be less inclined to give him if he made them give up their colonial possessions. 
And then Eisenhower made the huge blunder of letting de Gaulle enter Paris first. Oh, fuck and me. give his big speech in August of 1944 announcing the liberation of Paris. And that really pissed FDR off. <laughs> I came, I saw, conquered. No, that's a different speech. That's a photo op. That That is priceless. That is a photo op. I mean, he... He's basically, how is he not going to have the French people love him for that thing? What was Eisenhower thinking? That's insane. Yeah. Well, I think Eisenhower was thinking, listen, who else is going to do it, quite honestly? Yeah. De Gaulle's been the leader of the free French forces. He's the only guy who can do it. Come on, man. It's, yeah. it's just. Give him a solid. It's not. We, well, it's, we just, it's, it's ridiculous. There's no one else that can do it. It has to be De Gaulle. And yes, that pretty much meant that de Gaulle was a shoe-in to be the president <laughs> of the provincial government of France. Now, you might be forgiven for thinking that a country that had recently been occupied, right, but had now been given back its independence, might have something of an of an awakening about their own position. As a colonial occupying power. Oh, did the light bulb go off? No, they're French. <laughs> but I'm kidding. Do you think many Israelis ever stop and think, gee, after what happened to our people in World War II, maybe no. we shouldn't be such cunts to Palestine? No. No. I mean, to, to be honest, some do, but not enough to uh, shape Israeli politics, obviously. So, so... Paris, but, but, oh, go ahead. But, 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 of course they don't. The Israelis say, but they want to destroy us. <laughs> and I say, yeah, and that's what the Nazis said about the Jews in the 1930s too. Was it a good justification back then? No? No. Okay then. Is Peace in the Middle East solved. <laughs> What's next? <laughs> no, I, I just find it, um, it, 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 along those same lines, I just find it incredible that France, now that France has got their honor back, they've got their country back, or at least part of it, they've got Paris, the City of Lights back. The very One of the first things they're thinking about doing is like, you know, this whole Vietnam thing, we've got to get some troops in there quick, even though the war is pretty much almost over, so we can say we fought, we bled for this country, that's how much it means to us, and we and it means so much to us, we're never ever going to let it go. The people there love us, they want us back. France needs to return to, to Indochina. Mm. Well, it's going to be, it's, it's going to take a little while to get there, but there's no way that the big celery stick is going to give into China its uh, independence. <laughs> so at the Yalta Conference, uh, do you remember that Yalta Conference? Big, oh, big good times. Yeah. The Yalta Conference in February 1945, Roosevelt started to back off on his trusteeship plan, except in the case of Japanese territory. Of course. Um, now he started to say that. Uh, freedom for these colonial countries would happen only with the consent of the colonial power. Uh, er? Yeah, listen, I still want freedom for these peoples, but only if their oppressing colonial power is ready to give them freedom. But... 
He told Stalin while they were at Yalta that he would not allow U.S. trips, U.S. ships to be used to carry French troops to Indochina. <laughs> and Better much? Also recommended to Stalin that they don't bring up the issue with Churchill. Oh, my As God. FDR said, it would only make the British mad. Better to keep quiet just now. <laughs> Let's not talk about it. Churchill, so, I'm fucking old. I'm nearly dead. I can't sit through another Churchill speech at my age. So so what is FDR's plan? I mean, he's, it sounds like he's given up on the trusteeship. He still wants these colonies free because it's wrong, okay? And it's bad, okay? And uh, But what's he doing? Is he just kind of saying now is not the time? His plan is to get another hand job from his <laughs> private secretary. Oh, she just died, I think. Anyway, his plan was to die. He's like, fuck this shit, I'm done. And he died. Okay. Yeah. Aw. Now, one one month before he died in April, um, well, he died in April, one month before that, in March of 1945, the Japanese took full and complete control of Indochina. Oh, shit. Again, the French said, no. (laughs) And the Japanese just gave him a hard stare. And the French went... We, oui. yeah. <laughs> oui, yeah. So March 9th, nineteen forty-five, the Japanese ambassador Matsumoto shows up to Admiral. How do you say it? Dequa, Dequoi. How would you? Yeah, something like that. Okay. He, basically, he says uh, you have to be ready to hand over the the entire control of uh, Vietnam to the Japanese at by nine o'clock tonight. And remember, even though the the Japanese can do whatever they want, the political position of France is as long as we are technically still the administrators of this place, then we can use that as justification to get it back after the war. And now here we're at the very end of the war almost. Their plan has been working beautifully so far, even though they're humiliated. And now on March 9th, the Japanese are saying, we have come to take it completely away from you. Be ready to hand it over with the keys at nine o'clock tonight. And the French did that French thing. They muffed it up. (laughs) Oui, monsieur, oui. That's why people often wonder when you go to France, uh, particularly to Paris, why some of the people can be snooty. Right. It's because they remember this. They're like, <laughs> they're just, they're ashamed. The same reason I say Trump is such a narcissistic bully, it's because he knows he's a fake. He knows that his daddy gave him everything. Right. <laughs> and his whole self made man out of the deal thing, he knows he didn't even write out of the deal. He had a ghostwriter right. write the book. He knows he's never made a dime in his life. His daddy made it all and then had to bail him out Thank when he uh, went through his first couple of uh, economic, uh, first couple of fucking bankruptcies. Right. Um, so he knows he's a fake and it makes you angry. If you're living, yeah. you're living a lie, the French are living a lie that they're somehow <laughs> we superior. Have a fair. When they know that they just caved in like uh, a soggy, soggy biscuit. Like a French. Um, yeah. A bukkake biscuit. Um, now, this is obviously a pivotal moment for France and Indochina. The, the coup, the, the, if you want to call it that, I don't even know if you can call it a coup. It was just the, give us the keys, Take okay? Over. Yeah. Um, it's like when D'Angelo comes no. in. He says, Ray, I'm going to be banging heaven now. And you're like, okay, D'Angelo, can I make you, well, you need yeah. a sandwich? No. Make you a cup of tea? Coffee? Anything I can do for you? Can I be your fluffer? Can I be your fluffer? I'll be your fluffer. Oh, yeah. um, 
I have feelings. <sighs> anyway. So, giving in that quickly was obviously a signal to Ho. Right. That, um, you know, this, this, this whole facade that France had been running. You know, colonial rule is, is based on the Nawaz, based on the notion of the cultural and military supremacy and superiority of right. the Europeans over the In every way. third world countries, the Africans, the, the Asians, the Latin Americans. Um, yeah, so now that, that's just shown to be a farce. Now, particularly because it was an Asian country, ah, the Japanese, right. that just walked in and said, we'll take the keys now. And the French went, oh, okay, we. Oui. Uh, like, imagine you're Vietnamese. You've just watched this Asian country come and just dominate right. this European colonial power. Within hours. You've got to be thinking. Yeah. Yeah. If the, first the Germans did it to the French, now the Japanese have done it to the French. What's my time? We can do it to the right. French right. too. Yeah. Um. So, you know, it, 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 the French have just basically disappeared. The French colonial authorities just disappeared and the Vietnamese can see it everywhere. They've just, the, the fr- French have just disappeared like smoke. Now, I love this. De Gaulle gave a big speech after this happened. He said, uh, not for a single hour did France lose the hope and the will to recover free Indochina. Oh, God. Free Indochina. Well, yeah. This, uh, the ball's on the <laughs> celery stick, man. Like, <laughs> no, free Indochina. But it, it, and what we didn't really go into is that the uh, the French were supposed to turn it over at 9 o'clock. They, they even screwed that up because they're French. So there is some fighting. The French forces <clears throat> are quickly beaten. Uh, the men are humiliated in front of the Vietnamese. Some, some of the very few of the French soldiers are able to run out and get escape into northern China. But the point is, even though this is a humiliation beyond comprehension, de Gaulle is even able to turn this around because like you were saying just a second ago, he can now say, aha, see, we fought for Vietnam. We have bled for Vietnam. That is our justification for one day going back. It is still ours. They kicked us out because it is ours. We're going to get it back one day. So he even turned this defeat into a justification to return one day. Meanwhile, Good old Uncle Ho has been... He got, he'd been arrested in China in August of 1942. Wow. Um, by the local authorities who were suspicious of his political activities, keeping in mind, of course, that uh, China under Chiang Kai-shek has got its own problems with the communists under Mao Zedong. Yeah. And they're, they're rounding up all, uh, you know, potentially communist people, including... Um, those that are Vietnamese, um, because they can't tell them apart. The Chinese, no. they're like no. Chinese, Vietnamese. You're all, you all look the same to us, because <laughs> no. they're racists. And if you know that, <laughs> um, according to Ho's own account, right, he passed through eighteen prisons. Oh my God! Over the next twelve months. 
before they finally let him go in August of 1943. Uh, While he was in prison, he kept writing letters to people on the outside, members of the ICP, in disappearing ink. Get the fuck out. Now, how do you (laughs) write letters in disappearing ink in prison is is (laughs) what I want to know. I'm sure that there's a way of doing it. But uh, is it like just do you, is it you, do you write it in pee? Yeah. Uh, urine is that? Uh, Does it disappear? Now the concept of disappearing ink goes way back. I don't know if you know this. Do you know no. who first the f- earliest mention we have of disappearing ink? Chinese. No, who? Aeneas Tacticus, not to be confused with Tacitus. Right. Tacticus. In the 4th century BCE, he talks about using it under siege but uh, doesn't talk about how to use it. Wow. Uh, ex- uh, sorry, doesn't talk about how to make it, not how to use like it. Like the Duomo. So, Don't tell me. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, um, it's a big secret. <laughs> um, he actually had a book called On the Defense of Fortifications where he had 20 different methods of secret communications to be uh, carried out during siege. Damn. I love this. One of it, one one form of it involved punching a tiny hole above or below letters in the document to spell out the secret message. God. Who's got time to think this up? Clever, right? Yeah. Now, um, the Germans actually uh, improved on invisible inks during World War One and World War Two. They used invisible ink and micro dots instead of the little pinpricks that Tacticus suggested. Right. Philo of Byzantium might have been the first writer that we know of to use invisible ink. Uh, around 280 to 220 BCE, he used oak, galls, and vitriol. Huh. He was just a- angry when he wrote it. <laughs> <Not eventually. laughs> made it go invisible, scared it invisible. Um, that made he made oak gall ink. People realized that they could write invisibly with just one of the ingredients, and then you add the other ingredient, and you could you could see what was written. Uh, Pliny the Elder and Ovid talked about it. They talked about using plant juices and milk to write secret messages. The Arabs used lemon juice around 600 CE. And uh, Giovanni Battista della Porta came up with the first recipe for a sympathetic ink derived from alum and vinegar, as well as writing the first book on Invisible Inks and Secret Writings, the Magia Naturalis in 1558. So there you go. Damn. That's a potted history of invisible <laughs> ink. Um, I, I don't know which one of those old Ho was using. <coughs> probably probably lemon juice, maybe. Clever, yeah. though. Yeah. Clever. Clever bastard. Uh, I just want to... So, uh, I yeah. just want to add real quick. So not only does uh, De Gaulle in France promise one day they will return, that they have 
blood for this country, but they're making all sorts of promises. When we do get back, we are going to have a formation of uh, Indo- Indochina Federation with a larger French Union. So we're going to take all these lands, but it's going to be a part of something bigger. But here's the, here's the best part. It is going to be comprised of ministers drawn from both the Indochinese and the French communities in Indochina. So once we get back, because you want us back, it's going to be different. We're going to share power. It's going to be great. There's going to be lilies and butterflies all over the place. So they're making these incredible promises. But the people of Vietnam have got to know that it's, if they ever do come back, it's going to go exactly back to the way it was. This is just for, for PR, for De Gaulle. Yeah. Now, as early as late 1944, Ho could see how it was all going to play out. He predicted that Japan would lose the Pacific War. Mm -hmm. France would try to regain Indochina, but before they could do that, Tokyo would overthrow the local French regime in order to protect its army. That would cause a power vacuum that the Viet Minh would be able to fill. But again, he's very careful. Like he's, uh, what is he, 45, 55. He's 55 at this stage, 54, 55. Damn. Again, he uh, doesn't want to rush in. He tells his comrades to slow the fuck down (laughs) and avoid launching a premature insurrection. Right. Now, you know all about premature insurrections, Ray. Right. Um, Had a few premature insurrections (laughs) in your time. Uh why was he telling people to slow down still? Uh, well, I mean, I'm guessing that they're still not ready yet. The people aren't ready. They certainly don't have any weapons. I mean, how are they going to go in there and take on either the French or the Japanese? Yeah, exactly. And also, he's like, just let them fight each other, and then we'll go in and pick up uh, the scraps. We don't need it's about to timing. do it right now. Yeah. Japan's defeat was inevitable, so why not wait until the fruit is ripe to be picked? Ah. Just like it, you waited five years to pick Heather's fruit. And did I? Boom! Ten seconds. But, but here's you're the... Like the <laughs> you're like the Ho Chi Minh of Heather's pussy, well, Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. And if you think about it, I mean, even though he's been in jail with the... Um, with the the Chinese, hopefully these people are listening to him because he is their leader. He has sacrificed. He's been in jail. He's the one who came up with the Viet, Vietnamese Revolutionary League. The point is he has put in his time. He knows what the fuck he's talking about. Hopefully these people are going to finally listen to him because they've already had their ass kicked once at the beginning of the war. He has been working towards this for 35 years. <sighs> 1919, he formed his party and and wrote his petition. It's now 1944. What could you focus on for 35 years? I've I've been doing this podcast for 35 (laughs) years. It feels like. And that's just tonight. Yeah. (laughs) One of the reasons, the other reasons he, he, he wanted to take it slowly here is they still were trying to rebuild from being destroyed in 1941. Um, even in Tonkin, up in the north, they only control the Viet Minh, control a small part of the territory. And the rest of the country, especially down the south in Cochin, China, as it was still known, their presence was very spotty at best. Some provinces had no Viet Minh. 
well into 1945. So he's like, we've got to take our time yeah. here. The conditions are now ripe. I've been waiting 35 <laughs> years for this. But let's not rush in. He quoted Augustus, make haste slowly. slowly. <laughs> yeah. Ray's and, philosophy of seduction. And he's right, though. I mean, let them beat each make, other. Yeah. Make case slowly, but finish in under three seconds. Ten. God damn it. Don't you listen? <laughs> Ten if you're being thoughtful. <laughs> if you're feeling I'm generous. I'm a thoughtful lover. I, I really am. Yeah. Sometimes. He said, Ho said, the hour of peaceful revolution has passed, but the hour of the more general insurrections has not yet sounded. Ah. Oh, smart. And then came March 9th and the coup, uh, the removal of the French secret police uh, together with Japan concentrating their, their presence in the urban areas of Vietnam, preparing for a potential allied invasion, basically made the countryside uh, open for the Viet Minh to come in and, and do the underground work right. and the propaganda efforts that they needed to start to build a base with the people out in the country regions. So the Japanese basically chased the French troops out of Vietnam, <laughs> didn't think there was any reason to have a troop present in Tonkin up the north, right? and basically left the region to Ho and the Viet Minh to come and take for themselves so in the late spring and summer months of 1945, the Viet Minh started to take control of the northern regions and started spreading southward towards the region known as the Red River Delta. If, if I, and I thought yeah. that is where we might leave it. Well, hold on. Unless you have closing comments. Just that the hose time has finally come. That's it. That's it's really that 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 that's it. That's what you. Well, no, you you summed it up. I mean, you know, the the Japanese are worried about the Americans. They've got the um, rural areas to themselves. They finally are able to go in. This guy knows it's the right time, and they start laying the network. I just thought I would end with some levity. The host time had finally come. Oh, God. All right. Uh, that's uh, the end of episode 99. Um, we'll be back next week. No, two nope. weeks. And by the way, Scott Berbachakov, yeah. stop fucking contacting me. Every time, like we do three episodes a month, right? Right. Scott of Testicular Fortune. Fortune <laughs> he was happy about that. But every time, so we do three episodes every four weeks, right? There's a, yeah. there's a week break. Yeah. That's how all of our shows run because we're doing... We've got four shows that we do, and we, we do one recording session uh, per week. Every, every time there's a gap in Cold War, Scott's <laughs> fucking texting me. Like, where is it? Where's Cold War? I'm Jonesing. I knew a Cold War. Where's my Cold War shop? Hurry up. I'm like, fucking calm down, bitch. You'll get the Cold War show when you get it. What, I, what am I? You're, you're slave? It's not going anywhere. <laughs> He needs a hobby. We're going to get to it when we get to it. Uh, we'll uh, do it. What are you worried about? Oh, yeah. No, he's... Uh, anyway, long story. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Keep on. You need a girlfriend, dude. Like, seriously. <laughs> yeah. Leave me alone. Or Vaseline. Kidding. Kidding, Scott. We love you. Glad you like the show. Thanks for the support. <laughs> <laughs>
to tes- testicular fortitude, man. You need to show some Hang in when there. there's no cold war show. <laughs> yeah. Hey, before we finish, I want to do a shout out to Dan Dubrovsky in uh, Wisconsin. Dan uh, shot me a message the other day saying that uh, he loved the, the shows we did on Castro. And based on my recommendation, he went out and read Ignacio Ramanet's uh, sort of biography on Castro. Said it was the best book he ever read. And then wow. he, he wanted my, the recommendation of the Che Guevara book by John Lee Anderson that I've just finished reading. Um, nearly finished. Um, uh, uh, again, and he said, yeah, love, loving it. So good to see. Love it. I love it. He's a young fella, Dan, early 20s. Love it when young oh, Americans boy. start reading up on the history of things like the Cuban Revolution and start getting their head yeah. around it. And he was like, fuck me, like the propaganda I've lived under about these guys. Like when you read oh, about yeah. them, you're like, holy shit, they're nothing like they get portrayed in, in Western media. Um, so that's good. So cheers to Dan for having the balls to go out and read a book. <laughs> All right, back to the...